Today I'm speaking with Michael Schaefer, the founder and director of Warm Heart, a community development organisation serving Prao, one of the poorest districts in northern Thailand. Michael spent 30 years teaching the international political economy of development until at 55 he decided it was time to put theory into practice. He spent time consulting on issues of higher education reform in the Baltic states, Poland, Moldova and Lebanon and went on to establish his own foundation. Since 2008, Warm Heart has been transforming the lives of many people, addressing issues such as family care, education, microenterprise, environmental sustainability and health care for the elderly. We talk about Michael's work with the foundation and also his efforts to combat the problem with crop burning that takes place here in Thailand each year, something he's been working on a solution for for some time. We recorded the chat at a hotel and there are a few sound issues in the first 10 minutes, but do bear with it, it does clear up. Here's my conversation with Michael Schaefer. All right, is that go? That is go. All right. Michael, welcome to the Task Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So we're, we're sitting on a, on a balcony uh, at a hotel just north of the city. So maybe a little bit of noise, but hopefully healthy noise of, of wildlife and, and animals here. Yes. So. Tweety birds. Tweety birds. The kinds that don't do well in smoke. So maybe a good place to start is congratulations, actually, because I, I was looking on LinkedIn today and up came an alert that said 11 years of, of warm heart, uh, I think. So I don't know whether that 11 years is when you registered the foundation, but there was some sort of anniversary today. Is that correct? No, actually... July 4th, we started, we opened our doors, as they say, in, in Prow with, uh, with Warm Heart. So, yes, we've been around for 11 years. It's very hard to believe, but here we are, still functioning. You know, they say that 95% of small businesses are out of business in five years, and that 95% of that 5% of out of business in 10. So... Now that we've made it to 11, we feel like we've really made it. That's a little hard to believe, given how we feel about making it, but nonetheless, we're still here. Well, great to see, and that's, um, is that 11 years you've been in Thailand, or were you here for, for some no, time 11, that? No, 11 years that we've actually been warm heart in Thailand. Okay. Um, I first came to Thailand in 1986, dealing with uh, Khmer refugees, on the eastern border, came back in 2004 to the tsunami, and on the basis of that decided that Thailand was where I was going to retire when I hit 55 in my golden 25th year teaching and could afford to retire with full medical benefits, which all Americans worry about tremendously. And uh, my wife was willing to come here because uh, she didn't like any of the other places I wanted to go. Her rule was no guns, no bombs, no landmines, no bodyguards. And I assured her that none of those were going to be necessary in Thailand. And then in 2007, I ran a training program up in Maesai on the northern border, met a young Thai couple. And the three of us, plus my wife, when she came to visit on... Uh, on a uh, business trip, agreed, shook hands on the idea of starting Warm Heart, and 11 months later, 
we were here starting Warm Heart. So um, good to hear. And tell us about some of the some of the work you're doing with with Warm Heart. Um, you know, I kept, we met actually because I came across one of your articles, I think, in the Bangkok Post or the Nation, um, which we're going to talk about uh, yeah, related to the smoke. <laughs> but um, you know, the first thing I then did obviously was was look on your foundation website and. and you know, good to, without me going into it, tell us just some of the work you, you've, you've been well, doing, how that's changed, and you know, what you do today with Warm Heart. Yeah, well, today we actually do stuff that is very closely related to what we've been doing all along. Unlike most NGOs, we didn't have a specific program when we arrived. And in fact, for the, the year that I was in the States from 2007, to start up in 2008, I kept being told by people that we were going to fail. And we were going to fail because we didn't have a single mission, we didn't have a single solution to a single problem, and so on and so forth. But I kept saying, I don't know what these people's problems are. You know, if we're going to do community development, maybe we should ask them. And everybody said, no, 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 you have to know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> and, and I kept saying, but I don't know. And they said, you're going to fail, you're going to fail. <laughs> so we arrived with, uh, under a black cloud, let's put it that way. But we spent about the first year asking people in the community, what do you think your issues are? And um, basically, they came up with a series of issues that continue to guide us today. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing they were worried about was children and education, because dropout rates after uh, Paul Hawk, uh, year six, were um, about 85%. Um, then they worried about job creation because there simply were no jobs during the six or seven months of the dry season. Third, they worried about sustainable agriculture because Prau is a heavily agricultural area, as is all of the north of Thailand. and. Um, people were beginning to really worry about dying of pesticide poisoning um, and, uh, and not knowing what else to do. Um, and finally people said, we really worry about the elders because um, you know, there are so many old people here being abandoned um, and nobody's taking care of them. And to this day, Warm Heart really worries about those four things. Yep. And we are in large measure following the suggestions of our community in terms of how we ought to do so. Um, we're 11 years old too, so we can't have gone too wrong in doing that. I mean, that sound, that, that model, that approach. Interestingly, you know, having had um, some experience in the in the nonprofit sector, that approach is is now, you know, seen as the approach, whereas it never used to be, right? I mean charities traditionally would go out and fix things they thought were problems rather than using, I think the term is design thinking that Acumen coined, which is actually to, you know, not make any assumptions, to go out and understand the needs of communities and then design programs around those problems. So it sounds like you were already thinking in that way, which, you know, no doubt has helped in terms of, you know, being able to sustain what you do. Well, it has certainly helped. I mean, the community really, I think, at this point, trusts us. Um, the big joke around town, actually, is that 
when I go out and suggest that we try things and people just look at me like, you're totally nuts. I can smile and say, well, you know where I live, you know. <laughs> like, if this doesn't work, you can come beat on my door and blame me, you know. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that this sort of thinking has gotten all that far yeah. in, the, in the business. Um, it may be that a lot of small NGOs would like to operate this way, but by and large, small NGOs are funded by the big boys, yeah. and the big boys tell them what to do. Um, I mean, to a remarkable extent, I think development is still driven from on high. So if you want a budget, you basically answer to uh, RFPs, requests for proposals, yep. in which case what you are doing is you are doing the very best you can to write a proposal which meets the requirements of the funding agency. So if, you know, women's empowerment is the flavor of the day, you write about women's empowerment and you do whatever they tell you to do. Yep. Um, we have chosen not to be part of any network. Um, the result has been that we are chronically underfunded, but we're independent. Yep. Um, to make matters worse, rather than maintaining a presence in the U.S., my wife and I have chosen to live here at Warm Heart, which means that we know everything about what's going on at our organization but have a very hard time fundraising. Um, we know quite a few people who live in New York, for example. They are great at fundraising. They have no clue what their organizations are doing. Yeah. Um, we don't think that's the way to operate. But um, And how know. do you, it, where does your support mostly come from? Is it, is it individual donors? Is it yeah. corporations? Is, is no, it it's, really, it's really individual donors. I mean, we depend on um, individual donors and sponsors for our children, for our core funding, and then we do project funding through crowdfunding platforms and so on and so forth. It is actually relatively easy to raise money for specific projects. People are always excited about being part of a new project. No one wants to feed the children on a daily basis. Um, it is hard to say you know, my legacy is dinner for 50 days for 45 children, yeah. you know. That's just not sexy. So we struggle constantly to keep the lights on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have 45 children living with us. We support another 30 someplace else. Uh, we got 15 kids at vocational technical school. We've got 16 kids at university. Those are not expenses that people want to pay for. So electricity, utilities, school uniforms, school books, you know, medical expenses, taking kids to get their teeth cleaned at the dentist, you know, those are, those are the hard things to raise money for. Yeah, right. The, the money tends to come at emotional key points, doesn't it? When, when disasters happen, when, yeah. like the smoke we're going to talk about, when something is very prominent at a particular time. But it's, yeah sustaining those funds over a long period for the yeah. kind of operational reality of day-to-day. -day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the irony is where most of the money goes, let's say disaster relief, 
is where it is usually least well spent. I mean, when yeah. you have a major disaster, it is extraordinarily difficult to keep track of money. Um, and so much of the money and so much of the stuff you get is in utterly inappropriate to the situation. Yeah. You know, people will send, you know, you're in Haiti, you have a major hurricane, people send winter coats. You know, it's like, what? You know, does this make any sense? No, not at all, right? And so the poor people who are trying to handle relief on the beach are sorting out crap that doesn't have any purpose there, yeah. right? Um, whereas, you know, the, the, the boring day-to-day -day reality of what we do makes it exceedingly easy to plan. We need 50 toothbrushes every three months. We need small toothpaste because our children eat it. You know, we need large um, shampoos with which to fill the children's small shampoo containers regularly because they seem to eat that too, you know. I mean, it's, it's that sort of stuff that's really important, but it's not as sexy as a hurricane in Haiti. Yeah, sure. um, and although we can manage every bit of that down to the hundredth of a penny, whereas millions always go missing in Haiti, um, you know, it's, it's not cool to fund. It's just, you know, and I, I understand entirely why that may be, but it's extremely depressing when you need 50 toothbrushes and can't get anybody to donate them, you know? Yeah. Um, I really want to talk about the smoke. I mean, it's how we've been connected, it's what we're doing. Mm. It's not plainly obvious. I mean, you can go to your site, there's some information there, but you're very vocal about it, you write about it. Um, before we get into talking about solutions, maybe be good, you know, assuming a lot of our listeners don't live here, have probably not been exposed to it, Maybe just give us a, a kind of brief on this, you know, annual smoke problem that we deal with. Right. And this year in Chiang Mai, we're talking about, I think it was the worst rated city uh, in, the world. in the world for about yeah. two weeks. Which right? was but, really pretty impressive, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, just little old Chiang Mai was the, had the worst air in the world, which is really saying something, you know, when you, when you think about it. Well, um, this is really a global problem. Um, yeah. You know, if you think that... $10 a day divides the world's rich from the world's poor, then about 20% of the world's population, about 1.2 billion people are rich, and about 80% of the world's population, 5.4 billion people are poor, right? The world's rich do not suffer from smoke, right? I mean, if you go to Germany or the U.S., you do not have annual burning seasons. Farmers simply do not burn their crop waste, right? Um, if you were to start a crop waste fire in the middle of Germany, you would be in really deep doo-doo, as President George Bush used to say. <laughs> yeah, it's just not a happening thing, right? And yet, here in the developing world, every small farmer burns his fields clear. Um, here in Chiang Mai specifically, people normally talk about forest fires also. Um, because when you are in Chiang Mai and you look out, you see forest fires because the city is surrounded by mountains that burn. 
and the large fields that surround the city are owned by very large, very rich farmers and are very flat and lend themselves very nicely to plowing. The farmers are rich enough to have tractors and they plow under all of their stubble. So crop fires are not a problem here. If you go over the mountains, however, what you will find is that most of the burning is actually crop waste burning as it is in places like Mexico or Iran or the Indian Punjab or the Pakistani Punjab or, you know, East Africa, Central Africa, right? Huge areas which burn every year. So if you look at a NASA satellite photograph of the world, what you will find is that essentially all year around, the world is burning someplace, mm -hmm. and massive clouds of smoke cover the surface of the earth. Now, this is incredibly, incredibly dangerous for all of us, you and I included, being rich who live here in the developing world, because those very low temperature field fires, first of all, produce a tremendous amount of greenhouse gases. There is nothing benign about these fires. It is not just a matter of recycling the carbon in the plants back into the atmosphere, the carbon that was gathered through photosynthesis. Um, the low temperature fires also release a lot of what is called carbon dioxide equivalent in the form of um, methane and nitrous oxides, most importantly. Now, methane is 25 times more warming than <laughs> carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is 298 times more warming. So if you burn a ton of crop waste in the field, you also put more than a ton of greenhouse gas equivalent into the atmosphere. So you are really causing a lot of damage when you burn your field. You're also producing a lot of smoke, and that smoke is comprised very much of what is called particulate matter 2.5. 2.5 is 2.5 microns. It is so small that it doesn't even stick in your lungs like cigarette smoke. It goes right through the walls of your lungs, into your bloodstream. It travels through your blood to your brain, your kidneys, your liver, or whatever, and it ends up in resulting with all sorts of different diseases and causes of, of death. Now, so that you understand what that means, a single ton of um, crop waste, for example, corn waste, rice straw, whatever, burned in the field will produce 6.26 kilograms of this PM 2.5. Now, that doesn't sound like very much until that you realize you're talking about 6.6 .6 kilograms of smoke. Now, to give you a sense of what 6.6 .6 kilograms of smoke is, a kilogram of smoke is the equivalent of the smoke produced by 71,429 cigarettes. Right. So, <laughs> 6.26 times that is a really big number. 
And when you consider that every farmer in the developing world is burning his fields and producing that, you got some sense of what kind of a lung disaster we're talking about. So when people say, yeah, Ching Mai had the worst air in the world, you were breathing it, dude. <laughs> I was. I, I mean, I, I, I've somewhat naively not worn a mask until this year. Yeah, well, you I, will from here on out. I, I certainly will. I think I read an article, and I don't know whether it was a good comparison, but it compared like one day here being the equivalent of, in the smoke season, of being someone who smokes 20 cigarettes a day. Yeah. I don't know whether you can really compare it because it's a different type of smoke. But. Yeah, you, you really can't because at the very least, if you were smoking, it would stay in your lungs and your primary risk, your primary immediate risk yep. would be lung cancer. And then, of course, you know, it raises your high, your blood pressure and yada, yada, yada. But if you're breathing 2.5, it's increasing your risk for lung disease, for heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure, liver failure, brain this and that. I mean, it is systemic. So when we when we when we are all looking at this um, air quality index app, whichever one kind of downloads each season, and, you know, and you see Chiang Mai at the top of it, that that is giving you a measurement of 2.5 that's in the, the current atmosphere, right? Yeah. It's looking at the yeah. PSI level of, not PSI, the, the AQI. AQI level of 2.5. And is there any good, I couldn't find any really good medical statistics around what this is doing. And is that because they're not there or because the effects are long term rather than immediate? The effects tend to be longer term. Yeah. Um, although um, I just happened to read some um, data from India about the consequences, for example, for maternal infant and uh, elderly health yeah. of using, for example, burning biomass in a house for cooking and what that did. And it led to dramatic increases in stillbirths and infant mortality and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, one of the real difficulties is trying to sort out the exact impact of 2.5 from all sorts of other yeah. um, uh, cause, possible causes of death. So one of the best ways of doing it is to look at, for example, the average rate of mortality, say for Ching Mai, over the year, and then ask what happens during the months of the burning season in terms of specific diseases. And what happens, you will notice, is that heart attacks, strokes, and so on definitely jump up yep. during that season. So it is very clear just from looking at the aggregated statistics that breathing a large amount of smoke during the smoke season causes an increase in strokes infant mortality, heart attacks, and so on and so forth. Because there's nothing else that happens in March, April, and May that would explain that sharp increase. Yeah, I, um, found, I mean, I found myself with an eye infection this year for no apparent reason. I'm not someone who gets eye infections, so I'm sure. Yeah, no, I mean, all, all, sorts of, all sorts of bad things happen. And of course, what, what people like you and I, I mean, in general, the, the foreign community in Chiang Mai, the middle-class Thai community in Chiang Mai do not recognize is that 
Ching Mai actually has lower AQI readings than the rural areas. Um, and in fact, rural areas across the north tend to have higher AQI readings all year round. Well, I think Pi, where I'm, you know, where I'm based, actually was that hit like 800 or something, completely yeah. crazy. Which, yeah. yeah. Because, um, you know, people think about cities as being particularly bad because of traffic and factories and all that sort of stuff. But when you live in the country, what you recognize is that there is not one distinct burning season. There are, in fact, four or five different burning seasons. So every August, September, for example, farmers will burn all the prunings from their orchards. And in another season, they'll burn all of this. In another season, they'll burn all of that. So you have a fairly steady level of high amounts of smoke in, in, in the air um, so that you tend to find that children, for example, living in rural areas will have very high um, exposure to PM2.5. PM yeah. Also, as you, the further you get into rural areas, the more likely people are to cook with wood and charcoal. In fact, here in North Thailand about 65% of all cooking happens on wood and charcoal. Um, and charcoal is a very low quality product around here. It's very low temperature, it has a lot of tar in it, it smokes a great deal. And people's homes don't have chimneys. So homes are full of smoke. And if you cook on this stuff and you know, you're a woman, you've got a baby tied to your back, you're bending over your pot cooking, you're breathing a lot of this, the baby's breathing a lot of it. When it's cold during the winter, all the old people crowd around the fire to stay warm. Everybody's breathing just a tremendous amount of PM2.5, plus a lot of these noxious gases that are, that are coming off the charcoal. So you just find, you know, and in the developing world as a whole, I think the figure is almost 85% of people use charcoal or wood for, for cooking and heating. So, and coal, of course, in, in a lot of China, really poor quality coal. Um, so, um, you know, this problem of smoke is, is really terrible everywhere in the developing world. And I know you're very focused on one particular area, which is, is farmers and, and burning of husks and waste from the season. Is, do you have any um, view on you know, how much that is a problem versus corporation burning versus, yeah, small farmers. So you, you, you're kind of large farming, small farming, and then there's corporation-motivated burning. Is that a big part of it? You hear a lot of rumors. I don't really know. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of actual corporate burning, um, I think that tends to be, I mean, that is a huge problem where it happens. Yeah. But I think it tends to be a fairly isolated phenomenon. Okay. So, for example, in Indonesia, you would see a tremendous amount of corporate burning. Um, in Brazil and in neighboring countries, you see a tremendous amount of it. So, when um, I say corporate, I'm talking, you know, um, 
you know, industry needing to clear. Yeah. So, for example, in Indonesia, huge amounts of the of the forest burning is done by corporations okay. to clear land for um, palm oil. Yeah. And much of it is done very disingenuously by shell companies of shell companies of shell companies of shell companies that are ultimately owned by large supposedly reputable companies that are members of the responsible palm oil uh, consortium or whatever that promise never to do this but you know are in the promise you know in the in the process of doing it um, just burning over huge areas now Part of that, I'm quite certain, is driven today, right now, by the fear of the European community banning the consumption of palm oil, which I think has everybody in the business scared because it's going to, by depressing demand, mm -hmm. it will probably depress prices, which is pushing everyone to try and reduce their cost structure. So if you have new plantations that are just coming into the prime of productivity, then you will have the lowest possible oil and therefore be most competitive in the marketplace. So these guys, I think, are out there desperately trying to establish a lower price structure. Yeah. I mean, the people who are going to get blown out by this, of course, are all the smallholders who don't have the capital or the flexibility to respond and their costs are going to be too high they're going to get wiped out in the, the market and older plantations that again don't have that kind of peak productivity are also going to be very very stressed but um, there is therefore this this real I think pressure today to generate new plantation areas and this may be an ongoing pressure so that you always have got new, new high-productivity plantation coming online. Um, but this is a, I think this is a very concentrated, very specific problem. Yep. Um, I think that the real global problem is small farmers. Um, if you're a larger farmer, if you're a richer farmer, if you have better quality soil and land, you are probably going to be able to afford a tractor. You are probably going to have flatter land. You're going to be in a position where you can plow, and plowing relieves you of the necessity of burning. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're one of the two or three billion really small farmers in the world and you've got to remember that the great majority of the farmers in the world are very small although they occupy only maybe 10 or 12 percent of total farmland in the world um, don't have tractors they work really bad soil on very steep slopes, very rocky slopes or whatever. And they're the ones who burn. And they're very, very hard to deal with because, I mean, they don't have any alternatives. And trying to deal with, I mean, although their crop waste constitutes a 
huge ultimate collective volume of crop waste, it's so dispersed across these billions of tiny farms in much small amounts that collecting it to deal with in any high volume way is simply impossible, yeah. right? So what you need to be able to do is to figure out how can we deal with this problem in this wildly dispersed way in a way which makes it better for those small farmers to deal with the problem rather than just to let light this stuff on fire and the hell with it, sure. you know? Because, man, if I was one of those small farmers, I'll tell you, a match, that beats the hell out of anything else, you know? Yeah, and that's, this is part of the challenge. So, you know, what are the, and this is what you've been writing about, um, in, you know, you've been working on this for a number of years, right, with some of yeah. these farmers in terms of, of helping to, to change behavior um, so that these crops aren't burned. What are some of the solutions? How, how can you tackle this? Well, how challenging is it? I mean, here's, here's really where the difference between sort of how we approach things and I think how the developing, the development, if you will, business approaches things. Um, if you start from the global perspective, the problem looks like billions of small farmers whose behavior you have to change, mm. which seems to require really big projects and telling a large number of people that they ought to change their behavior, right? Uh, I don't know where that's ever worked before. Um, you know, the way we address it is by going down into the field and actually asking these guys, well, why do you burn? You know, what's going on here and what would keep you from burning? And, you know, what we get told over and over again is, you know, I don't like burning. I don't like the smoke. I don't, you know, I would do anything else. And, and the funny thing is they all understand. I mean, there, there, there's sort of two basic approaches that the big development organizations and governments and international organizations and so on take. Either they try and educate these guys on the belief that if they knew what damage they were doing, they wouldn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. So they try to teach them about smoke or teach them about the climate or whatever. Or they try and scare them, <laughs> right? Governments like trying to scare them. So they say, we're going to put you in jail or even we're going to shoot you, right? We hear this all the time, right? Well, it doesn't work. There are a hell of a lot more farmers than there are soldiers and no local policeman's going to go out and arrest or shoot his neighbors. So it, that's just not a happening thing. We've seen this fail year after year after year in Thailand. And when you go talk to the farmers, they've all been to all the seminars. They know how bad smoke is. They can tell you what the climate effects are. They can point to how cl changing climate has screwed up their lives. They know all of that stuff. But they say, what am I supposed to do? You know, I, I, I've got this field and it is full of yesterday's corn stalks, and it's full of weeds, and I have to plant. What am I supposed to do? I'm, you know, I'm just me. I can't go out there and cut this stuff down and drag it away. What am I going to do with it, right? So the problem is, how do you provide this guy with a better alternative? So you ask him, what would work for you? And he says, well, you know, if, if I could get paid to do this, 
enough that it would make it worthwhile my staying here and doing it instead of going down south or going to a city or whatever to get a job during the dry season when there's no work around here, then I'd do that. So the question was, well, okay, how can we make it more profitable or how can we make it profitable to make do something better with this than just burn it? Yeah. So what we came up with bio, was biochar. Biochar is essentially, uh, I mean, I call it sort of super charcoal. Basically, you make biochar by taking any kind of carbonous material. I mean, Matt, I could, I could turn you into biochar. I'd have to dry you out a lot, but, <laughs> but you would make fine biochar because you're basically carbonous material. But in this case, you use crop waste, right? It's all, you, it's all dry in the field. So if you can take that crop waste and you can heat it very hot in the absence of oxygen, it will turn into super-duper charcoal, pure carbon. And in the process, the heat is so high that all those CO2E gases break up. The methane burns hot as hell. And as it burns, the nitrous oxides and all those other things, they break up. And all the smoke burns up. So there's no climate, no environmental consequences at all. And what you get is this pure carbon with which you can fertilize your fields. It has a wonderful fertilizing effect in the fields. It lowers acidity. It retains water. It's really the basis of a great fertilizer. Or alternatively, you can make it into briquettes that people can use for cooking in lieu of regular charcoal because it doesn't smoke. It's pure carbon. It burns really hot, lights really easily, burns longer than their old stuff, and it makes no mess. No smoke, no smell is how we sell this stuff. So um, does, it, does it actually, so it burns with no smoke or it burns just with a hugely reduced amount of smoke? It essentially burns with no smoke. There'll be a little smoke when it starts, yep. but when it's going, unlike charcoal, it doesn't smoke. And the, the key test to this is you can take a bright, shiny pan, you can put it on top of this stuff, you can boil water in it, it boils a lot faster than it does on charcoal. But when you're done, there's no black gunk on the bottom of your pan. Ladies love this. I mean, you know, look, let's face it, it's only women who do cooking in these villages, right? So the way you sell this stuff is you got to go to the women and say, hey, try this, you know? And they love it. It's real easy to light. It burns really hot, so it boils water a lot faster. It doesn't smoke. Their house doesn't fill up with smoke. It doesn't stink. And they don't have to wash the damn pans afterwards, is, right? Is biochar, um, when you see the street vendors in Bangkok, are they cooking on biochar? No, they they're cooking, cooking on, charcoal? on plain, charcoal. plain charcoal. And charcoal comes from wood, yeah. right? So charcoal always requires that you cut down trees. So if you look at any big city anywhere in the developing world, you'll notice there are no trees around the city. The so-called peri-urban zone is almost always treeless. Why? Because people have cut down every single bloody tree to turn it into charcoal because it's easier to make, to carry charcoal into an urban market to sell to people to do cooking than it is to schlep wood in. 
Now, out in the countryside, you've got women and girls who will spend all day going out to collect the wood for a couple days' worth of, of cooking. So, if you're a woman in the developing areas, especially in rural developing areas, your whole life can be controlled, dominated by the need to go and collect firewood, right? If you can turn crop waste, which is right there next to you, into biochar and turn that into briquettes, then you don't have to do that. And you have a better, safer charcoal product to work with, right? So in all sorts of different ways, this is, this is better. But what we can say to that farmer is, if you take your crop waste and make it into biochar, someone is going to come to you and buy it from you, and it will make your work worthwhile. So it is better to biochar than burn. Yep. And what we're now trying to do, the current project that we're working on, is to try to set up micro-enterprises in villages where the micro-enterprise has the working capital to pay local farmers to make biochar. The micro-enterprise then takes that biochar and turns it into fertilizer or briquettes, which are value-added products which the cooperative then sells on to an outside broker, takes those profits, pays itself for the work it's doing, uses it to reimburse itself for what it paid to the farmers. And at the end of the year, in the middle of the rainy season, when there's nothing else going on, right, it divides the profits up, and all those farmers get this nice big whack of change in the middle of the rainy season. And why? Because they made biochar. Now, everybody else in town who didn't make biochar looks at them and says, man, where'd you get all that money? And the guy says, well, I made biochar. Now, the guy who didn't make biochar is going to say, hmm, damn, I'd like that money too. And he's going to do the same thing. So what you've created, ideally, is a system which increases the incentives to biochar, not burn. So unlike your typical development intervention where somebody pays a huge amount of money to experts and first-class plane tickets and consultants' fees and everything to come in and do something in one place which perhaps dies there or at most stays in that one place, now you've got something going which is going to expand through imitation, right? And for me, that's the measure of a successful development project, one which expands through imitation, yeah. right? Um, and here what you've done is you're now dealing with all this distributed biomass waste and all these small farmers, they're doing all the work themselves. They're solving the problem for themselves. And collectively, they're solving the problem for the whole world, right? They're reducing climate change pressure, they're cleaning up the environment, you know, they're doing all sorts of great stuff for everyone. And how's it going? It's been a few years. You've been working on this a few years. It obviously comes with challenges. I mean, apart from the fact... <laughs> You know, you only have a certain amount of resources and, you know, we're going to be working on this together in one way or another. How's, there's definitely general public support. That's the one thing you see. Like, straight away, people want to want to help. A lot of people don't know what they can do other than pledge yeah. some sort of financial support. But in terms of the other end of the supply chain, I mean, how are you, how are you finding success at the moment? And Right. Well, yeah. I mean, 
it has been a series of unimaginable challenges. I mean, I'm first sure. there was the technology. <laughs> it's really hard to make stupid technology, you know? I mean, this is a business that's dominated by higher tech and higher, higher tech, right? I mean, because in the developed world, the whole deal is making super specialized biochars. Around here, it's just making biochar. And it's, it can be done very simply, right? Very it simply. It does not need to be. And, and, you know, the problem here is actually that you want stuff that is so simple that any farmer can make it with stuff that he can find in the yard. He can find a, a recycling dump, you know. He can do it. I mean, literally, our simplest technology is a trench. All you need is a hoe. You just dig a hole in the ground, for God's sake. This anybody can handle, right? But it takes a lot of work to get to that realization, sure. you know? So that was problem one. Problem two was to realize that despite all the yak-yak about it, that the developed world just doesn't give a goddamn, right? They are perfectly willing to talk about reducing CO2 emissions, but they won't pay for it, right? I naively went into this thinking, if we could present a vision of how to reduce CO2 production in the developing world, that the UN or somebody like that would be willing to pay for it. Wrong. They're willing to say, great, 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 but they're not willing to pay a penny for it. That's what pushed us in to creating a business model, right? Then what I discovered was that normal people like you and I, people around me, were really interested in this for two reasons. Local, local people were really interested because they, they understood the value of the fertilizer and they wanted the briquettes, you know? I mean, they wanted the products. They understood the value of the products. And the middle class people really wanted the smoke to go away. They wanted to improve the quality of their lives, and everybody had been promising them something for years and years and years and years, and nobody had ever done anything. I mean, you cannot imagine the number of emails I get saying, I was so happy to find your site. I've been worried about this for years. You are the first organization I have ever run into which actually says it has a solution and is willing to put its name on the line saying, if we don't do this, here's where we live, come get us. You know? I mean, every year the government has big conferences. At the big conferences, they bring out exactly the same people. They say exactly the things must be done, need to be done. Oh, this is so complex, blah, 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 blah. Nobody ever does anything that is discussed. In the end, the only solution that anybody in the public ever sees is that they take the fire engines out in the middle of the Three Kings Square in Chiang Mai and shoot water in the air. Now, this is about as stupid a solution to the problem as I can imagine. But to my knowledge, that is the one and only actual action taken. Yeah, no, I saw it done this year. So yeah. And that, you know, it's like, hello? <laughs> you know, and, and then some guy 
from British Columbia, University in British Columbia, writes me an email and says, oh, I just visited this professor at Chiang Mai University who runs a laboratory in, I don't know, alternative energy or something, and his whole laboratory is full of inventions and products to end the smoke problem. And I am thinking, who the hell is this guy? And if he's got all this stuff, what's he waiting for? And who's paying for it? And what's the program? And it's like, you know, what is this, a national secret? And are we waiting for the second coming? I mean, what, if we got it, what's, you know, I mean, I don't understand. If you got something, use it. Put it out there. How are you ever going to know if it works if you don't test it? And what in the world works the first time? I mean, I know from experience, nothing I have ever done in my whole life has worked the first time. And I can tell you, everything I've ever tried works better the second time than the first, and better the third time than the second. You know, I mean, you learn by doing. What's this guy waiting for? If all this money, I mean, in this lab, I happen to know, got 10 million baht several years ago to develop a Thai version of a machine that you can buy on Alibaba for a couple thousand dollars. It's available everywhere in the world. Now, why Thailand needed to develop its own is beyond me, but why it needed $300,000 to do so strikes me as being totally and absolutely outrageous, you know? Now, what, what's, what's the deal here? You know, I don't know. But the fact that we're doing something really attracts people, and they are clearly willing to fund us because every day, you know, we get a thousand baht, we get a hundred dollars, we get, you know, people, and every one of them comes with a note saying, thank you so much for trying to do something. And in the end, people don't even seem to care whether we succeed. It's simply because we, we say we are out there to solve this problem. I think part of that, I mean, this, this year in particular, part of the problem is the problem is so apparent at one, one time of the year for two mm. months, and then it goes away and everyone forgets. That, yeah. That's part of the challenge. And when it, start, when it comes around again, there's a lot of moaning yeah. but not a lot of doing. And that, I think that's, the fact that you're doing something is, um, you know, I think that's attractive to people because they can at least, you know, support someone who's who's working on a program, so. Yeah, and, and ironically, I mean, I used to be very frustrated <laughs> that people would talk about it a lot for three months and then forget about it yeah, for so nine months. This year, I'm immensely thankful for the nine months of peace and quiet because... Yeah. When it comes around again, I hope we're really ready. I hope we've got something really great to show people and say, hey, look at this. You know, last year you gave us a good kick in the butt and look what we did. You know, that's going to be fantastic. What was your, um, what originally, is it personal motivation that got you into this just because, I mean, for me, I'm personally motivated because I actually see the effect that it's having on me and it's having that effect on me, it's affecting everyone else around me as well. Was it just personal motivation that got you into this because this is where you live, this is your country, you can see the, the devastation of this smoke? Was it, speaking of the farmers, what, what were the yeah. actual motivations? It's really the farmers. I mean, you got to understand, I'm a, you know, I'm a development guy. I've, mm. you know, I, I gave up a, you know, literally the last bomb-proof job in America. You know, tenured professor at a major research university, you know, and, and I chucked it just as the United States went into the 2008 
depression, you know. It was like, well, talk about a dumb move, right, you know. Mm -hmm. Everything goes to hell in a handbasket. I quit my great job. I come here. I took literally every penny we had and yeah. dumped it into to Warm Heart. Because what I really wanted to do was to see what I could do about improving quality of life of poor people. Right. And that was really what this was all about. And um, so, as is typical of all the projects we work on, this project as it sits now combines as many pieces as possible. It combines improving the quality of life of small farmers, mm -hmm. uh, restoring the soil permanently, um, dealing with uh, the smoke, dealing with climate. In other words, um, I built it slowly over time by thinking, oh, if I could, if we can do this, we can add this additional portion. And if we push the project that way a little bit, we can add this and, and, and so on. So, you, so you've directly seen the effects of this smoke on those small, oh. on those um, farming villages? Yeah, I mean, you know, I run a children's home. I've got yeah. 45 kids who live with me. Every one of them has probably five or six dead siblings, yeah. you know. Um, kids who didn't make it past age five. Those kids almost certainly died in large measure or at least because of smoke, you know. Um, they died because they were on their mother's back over smoky cook fires and, 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 and so on. I mean, morbidity, mortality, death, you know, because of smoke is yeah. just part of what we live here in North Thailand. You don't see it in the big cities, but you do see it where I live. Um, you see it in every village I work in. It is part and parcel of, of daily life, as is absolute poverty. I mean, according to the National Statistical Organization, uh, the NSO, the lower three deciles of the population of the North, even when you factor in the wealth of Chiang Mai, live at less than a dollar a day, mm. okay? Now, that will tell you something about the, where my kids come from, right? Um, I don't spend my time on Nimanam, you know? I spend my time up in the mountains, and those people have nothing, you know? And when they say, when the dry season comes, I have to go south to find work. I can't afford to stay here and cut down corn stalk and do something with it. Of course I burn it, you know. They really mean it. And when I say to them, dude, I can pay you two or three or four baht a kilo to turn that into biochar, it's, it's like mana from heaven, right? When I say I can pay you half as much for doing this is you can get for the corn itself. It's just, it, fun, it can fundamentally change their lives. You know? I mean, it's a business model, which is why it's good as well, to give these, yeah. you know, give these communities a business model as yeah. a solution. It's sustainable, so can, yeah, and it's, it's sustainable. not sustainable simply in the environmental sense that it doesn't further pollute the environment. It's sustainable in the critical sense, which means that people will continue to do it for as long as it makes money. Nobody stops doing profitable things. The problem with the great majority of environmental projects is that they require 
constant infusions of outside money, mm -hmm. which is why most people say caring for the environment isn't feasible. It's a financial black hole. My answer is no. Caring for the environment simply requires smart business models. If you are smart enough, you can make the environment profitable. And I will tell you, I took a lot of the sort of the intellectual energy from this from Mike Bloomberg. Now, Bloomberg is a billionaire businessman, and for a reason, he's got a project called Vital Oceans, which is about how you restock the ocean's fish, you know, yeah. fish stocks, right? And basically what he does is to take everything from monitoring the fish stocks to selling the fish sticks, and he breaks it up and says if you invest this much in this, the result will be this much in extra, and if you, right? From one end to the other. And then he, so he puts together business plans for every step along the way. And the point of the exercise is that if you stop looking at the ocean's loss of fish stocks as a, an inevitable and financial disaster, but instead look at it as an opportunity for investment in which you can make money and in which the world can get its fish back, right? It can all work. It's brilliant. And I thought, damn, I can do that too. And as I look around the world, I think you can do that here and there and here and there. There is no reason in the world why the world's environment has to be a loss leader. You know? I think it's a, yeah, I completely agree, and it's a very sensible approach. It's um, yeah, I think looking at this smoke problem, turning it into a business opportunity as opposed to just an environmental issue um, and, a, and a health issue is is a much more sensible way to to approach it. Yeah, and and part of it too is simply you know convincing governments, for example, to get beyond a politician's you know, basic time horizon of yesterday, you know, oh, my budget has to, you know, well, right? If you begin thinking about life cycle budgeting, right? For example, the burning season costs Thailand literally billions of dollars a year in healthcare costs, right? If Thailand were to spend the money to deal with the burning season today, the savings within just a few years would more <laughs> than make up for the cost of that effort, right? But because there's such a rigid bureaucracy and such a rigid budget structure, there's no way to show how savings on one part of the ledger translate into, you know, cost, you know, they, just can't think that way. But if you could convince people to think about holistic budgeting and life cycle budgeting, you know, you could make a lot of these problems go away. And here, I think, is where Singapore, you know, is really critical. Singapore has all these great environmental projects and ideas, but that's less important than the mentality behind that. The mentality behind that is saying, Let's think holistically about our whole system and let's ask what our overall costs are 
and what we are overall paying for quality of life. And then let's ask, if we invest here, what will be the flow-throughs to other things, right? And if you think like that, you get Singapore, right? And if Thailand began to think like that, Thailand could begin to, right? Chiang Mai could begin, right? Chiang Mai is never going to be this second Singapore that everybody talks about because Chiang Mai is never going to get its head out of the ground, right? Why? Well, partially because it's, everything's run from Bangkok, which has no clue what it's doing either. But beyond that, you know, nobody in Thailand thinks about the big picture. It's all blah, blah. But nobody can deal with anything. Every single issue has 23 ministries and agencies working on it with no command structure and no vision. Well, that's not the way you deal with the environment or anything else productively. Cool. We're just we're, we're going to have to pretty much draw it to a close because I think I'm actually about to get kicked out of the hotel room here. But um, <laughs> is, before I do, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to talk about? Um, you know, one thing worth mentioning. Obviously, we're we're working on this project together. I will I will post some information about that. Um, you know, on on the on the podcast rather than going into it now. Uh, but but you know, anything you you want to talk about, or, or if not, do you want to? Where can people find out more about you for a start? Where, where's the best place to? Well, I think there there are two places to find out about us. One, of course, will be on task, yep. right? Because that I think will be an immediate place where you can can make connections to progress. Um, second would be the Warmheart website, which is www.warmheartworldwide.org. Um, and if you look under environment, then you'll find out all about biochar and environmental programs we're involved in and so on and so forth. Um, we are also on Global Giving, which is a big crowdfunding um, platform um, where we do a lot of our, our, our crowdfunding on projects, including the Smoke, the Smoke Project. We have a presence on Facebook, um, on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, all just look for d.michael.shafer and you'll, you'll find me. Um, but I, I think the main point I want to make is this one about profitability and sustainability, that the environment needs people to stop thinking about it as a financial black hole and start thinking like social entrepreneurs because there is nothing about the environment which makes it inherently loss-making. Cool. It's probably a, a good, healthy place to end. So, um, yeah, look, look. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I look forward to, um, you know, visiting, meeting you up at your your center, and visiting some of these villages soon. So, right. yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you up in Maywek and Maygem, and seeing all the replanting and the biochar making and Definitely. all that good stuff. It will happen. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Cheers, Matt. Mike. Thank you. Pleasure. All the best.